Well, good morning, Watermark. How are we doing? That's what I'm talking about. Man, it is so good to see y'all's faces in person. For those of you that are joining us online, we are so glad you decided to, uh, to jump on with us this morning. And as Todd mentioned, we are continuing our Retold series. We've got this week and then next week, and then we're going to be done with this amazing series. In God's sovereignty, he had us teed up this week with Jesus calming the storm. And I don't know about you, but when I got up this morning and drove to church, there was a monsoon. There was a storm of rain and lightning and thunder. But you know what? That wasn't the only storm this, this country we live in has faced this week. I mean, every single week. Doesn't it feel like something is coming up that you're like, oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, I mean just this week alone, you know, we had friends in Kenosha, Wisconsin, young man is shot, was fighting for his life in the hospital, Jacob Blake, and that city there were protests and riots and unrest. And then some 17-year-old kid from Illinois shoots and kills two men, Anthony Huber, Joseph Rosenbaum, and chaos, and a storm has descended over Kenosha. There's more on COVID, and there's job losses, and there's sicknesses, there's financial uncertainty and this storm has been swirling over this country, over this world for six months. There's, there's this, uh, I don't know if you guys are paying attention, these Republican and Democratic national conventions and all the swirl and the nonsense and the media. And there's this sense that no matter who's elected in November, there's going to be more storms in our country. And then some of us have walked in this morning and you're not concerned about conventions because you've got a storm that's hit you this week. You know, you may, have, you may be walking in this week and you may have heard, hey, we don't no longer need you at this job. And so it's not about job losses. It's about, man, I don't have a job now. You may have a spouse who just came and said, listen, I'm, I'm done. I'm tapping out of this marriage. Or you, some of you have children who are, you're watching them make decisions that you know are going to be hurtful to them. And they're rebuffing you and you're just watching them. You're like, man, this is a storm. I've got this prodigal child or an illness, a diagnosis. And so some of us are walking in here really heavy. And it's, if we're honest, it's easy to feel helpless. It's easy to feel hopeless with all that's going on in our world and all that may be going on in your life individually. And the reality is these storms, they affect all of us, right? It don't matter if you're young or old or black or white, whether you've got a lot of resources or you've got no resources, storms affect all of us. Does God's word have anything to say to offer us that we can learn from of what do we do in storms? And the answer is, yes, he does. He has spoken clearly. And we're going to get a chance this morning to unpack that a little bit. Now, what we're going to be talking about this morning, as Todd mentioned, is Jesus calming the, sea, uh, the storm in the Sea of Galilee with the disciples. And so a lot of what we'll talk about this morning are the storms that have blown into your life through no fault of your own other than the fact that you were born after Genesis 3, okay? But if we're honest, some of you are in the midst of storms that are self-inflicted. And the chaos in your life is a direct reflection of the choices you've made. And I want you to know, I think you're going to be encouraged this morning and challenged, and I would beg you to go back and listen to last week's sermon by David Marvin on the prodigal son. What does God think of you when you are at your lowest, when the choices you have made have brought you to your knees and there's guilt and shame? What does God think about you in that moment? And I think you'll be greatly encouraged 
Okay, so I'm excited. When we're done, I hope that you will walk away with this big idea, which is how we answer the question, who is Jesus, is going to determine how we view and respond to storms. How we answer the question, who is Jesus, will determine how we view and respond to storms. I mentioned we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. This, this actual, this miracle is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to go through the, uh, the uh, one that's recorded in Mark because it's my favorite gospel. I love the Gospel of Mark. And this story takes place, at a, obviously, at a point in Mark. And that where it takes place in Mark is important. So let me give you a quick running start of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Chapter 1. You've got John the Baptist and Jesus kicking off his ministry. And you see very quickly by the end of chapter one, this guy is different. He teaches with authority. Um, he's doing miracles. He's calling to himself men, Simon and Andrew, James and John. And this, like, at the end of chapter one, you have this statement by Mark that the crowds are coming to Jesus from every quarter. Chapter two, one through chapter three, verse six, Mark moves us into this conflict section where Jesus is having these, these uh, interactions with the religious leaders of the day. And they're trying to figure out, who do you think you are that says you can forgive sins? Who do you think you are that your disciples don't have to obey the Sabbath the way that we've defined the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And there's this conflict section between Jesus and the religious leaders. And that section ends with the Pharisees going out to plot with the Herodians, another uh, political uh, group, as to how to destroy Jesus. And so you see it amps up really quickly the discontent between the religious leaders and Jesus. And then we move into the end of, uh, middle and end of chapter 3, and we sort of see like, hey, a team Jesus is being solidified, okay? You see that his family thinks he's crazy. Uh, they're not sure what's going on. Jesus formally invites 12 men. He appoints 12 men to be his disciples. He calls them apostles. That happens. And so you see the official recognition of these are my men, Okay. Uh, and you see um, Jesus sort of like, who's on Jesus' team? And at the end of that section, Jesus has an interaction with the religious leaders. And, and they attribute to Jesus, like, hey, the reason you're doing what you're doing is because you are possessed by the devil. And Jesus says, okay, this now represents a change in the way we're going to interact. You are formally rejecting me in spite of what I'm saying, in spite of what I'm doing, as your Messiah, and so everything changes after that interaction with the Pharisees. And it says, Mark says, he began to teach them in parables. So Jesus is like, hey, you reject me, that's fine. I'm now going to change my instruction uh, into, into parables. And so you've got this section of parables, four main parables. And this parable section starts with something and it finishes with something, and that's going to set us up for where we're going. It starts by saying, at the beginning of this section on parables, Jesus began to teach them all things in parables. And to his disciples, he explained everything. And then he ends that same section by saying, Jesus was teaching them all, all things in parables, but to his disciples, he explained everything. And so Jesus is saying, you're my guys to these disciples, and you're going to get an inside look. You're going to get a front row seat into my actions and my teaching. And I'm going to explain to you everything. See, the Gospel of Mark has many themes, but the two big themes of Mark's Gospel are who is Jesus, Christology, who is Jesus. And Mark's going to start his Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark's going to carry that theme through the Gospel, and he's going to unpack through the Gospel that this man 
is the Son of God. The second major theme of the Gospel of Mark is discipleship and the training of the 12 in particular. And we're going to see these guys often don't get it and Jesus is patient with them and he invests in them. And then we get to our section in Mark, 40, uh, Mark 4, verse 35 and on, and you have these miracles. And the first miracle is Jesus calming the storm. So let's read God's word. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Mark 4. We're going to start in verse 33 to get us a little bit of a running start as we head into our miracle. Mark 4, 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and they said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This story, first and foremost, is about Jesus. It's not about the boat. It's not about the disciples. It's not about the storm. It is about Jesus. And every element in the story is meant to drive us to deal with this question. Who then is this? And how we answer that question is going to determine how we view and respond to storms. And after this miracle, Jesus is going to make it to their side and he's going to heal a, demon, a man that's demon-possessed in the land of the Gerasenes. And this man who was uncontrollable will now be made whole and in his right mind. He's going to get back in his boat. He's going to go back over and he's going to be met by a man who's got a sick daughter who's on the verge of death, a 12-year-old daughter. And Jesus is like, let's go. And on the way there, He's going to be interrupted by a woman who's had a hemorrhage. Uh, uh, she's been bleeding for 12 years, and she spent all that she had, and she's only gotten worse. And she just says, if I just touch his robe, I know that I'll be healed. And she reaches out in fear, and she touches it. And Jesus senses, and he, and he has this interaction and ends with, daughter, don't be afraid. Your faith is healed. You go and be free. And while that's happening, some guys come and say, hey, listen, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. And Jesus says, don't you be afraid. And they go. Jesus takes with them the father and the mother and a couple of the disciples. And he says, Talithia Kuma, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this girl rises from the dead. And all four of these miracles are driving us. They're forcing us to deal with the question, who in the world is this man? And so these guys are in a boat. Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side. They're like, that's great. We've been with you. We think you're a great teacher. We've seen what you do. You're pretty amazing with the miracles. You don't seem to be afraid of the religious leaders. Let's go. And they get in the boat and they get in the middle of Sea of Galilee, which is about 700 feet below sea level, mountains on three sides, plains on the other. Wind sweeps through in that area, creates this swell, this vortex of a storm. And these men, some of whom are professional fishers, are scared to death. You ever been in a situation with water where you're scared to death? About seven years ago, we took a vacation to Tybee Island with my family and my parents and siblings and nephews and nieces, and we rented a big house there. And I was out walking with two of my sons at night. We were walking on the shore. My oldest son is a senior in high school now. He would have been about 10, 
and my little guy that's a seventh grader would have been about, I don't know, young. <laughs> that kind of math is hard. And so we're walking at night, and it's dark, and we're by the, 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 the ocean, and we're on the sand. And we're walking, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a wave comes, a giant wave. And it's like I got hit by a linebacker. And it completely took me off my feet. It knocked both of my boys off their feet. There was a guy that was fishing. He had one of these carts, and it upended the cart. And I'm up, and I'm panicking because I'm like, where are my sons? I can't see him. It's dark. I don't know what the heck just happened. And I'm panicked. Where are my boys? And I, we find out later there was an ocean liner way offshore that had come. And as that, that ocean liner made this wake, as that wave got closer and the, and the, the water got shallower, it began to build and build. And out of nowhere in the dark, it hit us. And I guess these disciples felt something similar to what I felt, which was sheer and utter terror at the power of the water. You ever felt like that? And so Jesus, they wake him up. Don't you care? We're about to die. And I envision Jesus kind of like what I do with my dumb dog. Hey, tss, tss, sit down. Jesus wakes up. He's like, hush, be still. Don't email me about my dog, please. Uh, I like my dog. And if you want her, you can have her. Um, so Jesus, just hush, be still. And everything gets quiet. And these men are like, wait a second. So as a, as a 21st century Westerner, this miracle it's hard to get my arms around. And I'm, I've seen big, giant cruise ships cross the Pacific. There's submarines we see that go into the depths of the ocean. And this miracle still baffles me. Now, imagine you're a first century Jew. And for you, the sea is a place of chaos and death and destruction. I taught on Jonah, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. And I mentioned to you that the ancient Near Easterner viewed the sea as the place of death and chaos and destruction, which is why when Jonah went to the sea, it was like not a good sign, okay? This is how they viewed the sea, death, chaos, and destruction. And there's only one guy in the ancient Near Eastern, and if you're a Jew, who controls the sea. There's only one guy that controls, the, that parts the Red Sea. Who is it? It is Yahweh. It is the Lord God of hosts who controls the sea and the wind and the waves. Who, who stops the Jordan River? So the nation can walk by God, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of a sudden, these men are in a boat and they wake up this man and he says, peace, be still. And there is great calm. Who in the world is this man? You could spend your life meditating on that question. There is no category by which this miracle stacks up. And let me just say this, in spite of all the craziness of the storm, if those disciples really knew who was in the boat with them, they would not have panicked. Does that sound crazy to you, based on what I just described? If they had known, if they had fully understood who was in the boat with them, they would not have panicked. Okay, yeah, yeah Lev, I get it. Jesus in the boat, shouldn't have panicked. No, 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 no. Who is in the boat? Listen to me. Who is in the boat? The Son of God is in the boat. Let me read from you from Colossians chapter 1. I want you to listen to what Paul writes. Who is in the boat? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn 
of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Why did the water stay calm? Because the water knew his voice. Because he was the one that spoke it into existence way back when. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who was in the boat, guys? The son of God. Why did the disciples not need to panic? Because God was in the boat with them, but they didn't know. They hadn't quite figured out who Jesus was. Okay? And it sent them into a great fear. Every element in this story is meant to drive us to deal with this question, who is this? And how we answer that question is going to determine how we view and respond to storms. And we all have to deal with that question, who is Jesus? Is he the son of God or is he not? It's a yes or, it's a binary question. There's one right and one wrong. Yes or no? The answer is yes. And he's demonstrated it through his teaching, through his miracles, and ultimately through his death and resurrection from the dead. Those guys didn't need to worry because God was in the boat with them. And from that central truth, let me give you two things I want us to think about. One, having Jesus in the boat does not prevent great windstorms. Having Jesus in the boat does not prevent great windstorms. These guys weren't prepared for a storm. They assumed that their crossing of the Sea of Galilee, which is about, if you from Dallas, it's about three times the size of White Rock Lake, okay? To give you a, a sense of how big it is. They thought it would be another day and they weren't prepared for the storm. Whether or not they thought because Jesus is with them is irrelevant. And I'm telling you, just because Jesus is in your boat doesn't mean you're not gonna have storms. And it would be really good for us to make that realization that, hey, in this life, there's gonna be storms. And what I see, I know that a lot of you would agree with that conceptually. Well, of course, look around our world, idiot. Of course there's storms. And yet I see two lies in the church. One is subtle and one is outright. Here's the subtle one. This is the one that I struggle with. I sometimes make the assumption that obedience equals smooth sailing. And so I enter into a transaction relationship with Jesus. We're like, hey, I come to church. I'm, I'm giving of my resources. I'm loving my kids. I'm discipling others. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So kind of just leave me alone. And I would never say that because that's crazy. But when I'm discouraged because of the storm, and I'm thinking about, I don't understand, Lord. I'm doing, I'm doing all the right stuff. I have begun to, bought, to buy the lie that obedience equals smooth sailing, and it just doesn't. And here's the second lie. This is the outright lie, and I hope we don't see it in this place, but I'll tell you what, I see it all over this country, and we've exported it to the world, which is this. Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy. It's the prosperity gospel. Now look, does Jesus want you to be in good shape? Sure, but he knows his body's decaying. Is Jesus anti-money? No, money is a tool to be used for him. But when you say God's plan for your life includes health and wealth, you are peddling a bunch of garbage. 
And I'll tell you what, it is all over the church in America. And because you haven't given enough money or because you don't have enough faith or whatever other vomitous stuff, and we've exported it from the USA all over the world. And it is heresy and it is a lie. Jesus said in John 16, guys, I've said these things to the disciples that you may have peace in me. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, look, you live in a post-Genesis 3. It's broken. And it's not the way it's going to be. And it's not the way it was. But right now, they're going to have tribulation. And not only that, if that weren't enough, Paul, when he's writing to his young pastor friend, Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if it wasn't enough just to live in a broken and fallen world, you're saying, if I raise my hand and say, hey, I'm on team Jesus and I give my life for him, I'm going to be persecuted while evil men go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yes, that's what God's word says. And we shouldn't be surprised that we have COVID, that we have racism, that we have cancer and miscarriages and unemployment, and we should do everything in our power to push back against those forms of sin and those forms of destruction and expand the kingdom of God. But while we are on planet earth, we are gonna have tribulations. Today is not as it was, and today is not as it will be. Having Jesus in the boat does not prevent great windstorms. But, here's my second point. Having Jesus in the boat should change how we feel about great windstorms. Having Jesus in the boat should change how we view and respond to great windstorms. Now, so the disciples for the 12, this was really their first at bat. They'd been with Jesus, they'd watched him, they'd listened to him. Jesus was largely doing his thing. And this is the first time Jesus kind of puts these guys up to the plate, see how they do. And how'd they do? Not so well. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus says, okay, look, you, I said, let's go to the other side. I didn't say, let's go to the middle of the Sea of Galilee and drown, okay? And oh, I've got this, hush, be still. And Jesus responds to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He wasn't upset because they couldn't fix the storm. He wasn't upset because they didn't see that maybe a storm was coming. He was talking to them because he's like, guys, listen, I'm in the boat. You don't have to worry. And I, as I was reading this passage this week and preparing, it occurred to me that um, I've read this section of scripture, I, I don't know how many hundreds of times. And it occurred to me this week that when I read Jesus say to them, why are you still afraid? Have you no faith? What I hear in my head is drill sergeant. Like, what's wrong with you idiots? Did you see what I just did? What, are you dumb? Why are you afraid? There's nothing to be afraid of. That's what I hear. And dadgummit, I don't want to view Jesus that way. Because I'll tell you what, Jesus has some really strong and sharp words to say in the gospels but you know who they're always directed to? They're directed to the religious leaders of the day who were abusing God's people. Go read Mark chapter three, a couple, a little bit earlier. Jesus has the, he's healing the man. He looks around him and he looks at, he says, he looks at them with anger, grieved in his heart at the hardness of their hearts. And then go to Matthew 23, where Jesus just unloads on the Pharisees. You know how Jesus talks to those that are broken and hurting his disciples? He's not, He's not browbeating him. He's not a drill instructor. He's a teacher. He's a friend. He's like, hey. And so here's how I think. And we don't know because the Greek language doesn't let us know the tone with which Jesus. But I think based on all the other interactions in the gospel, I think it was like this. Guys, guys, 
why are you afraid? Haven't you been watching? Like, see what I've done? That demon-possessed guy, I healed him. Peter, your, mother, your mother-in-law, I took care of her, right? Why are you still afraid? Don't you know who I am? You still don't yet believe in me? It wasn't a, it wasn't a rap on the knuckles. It was a, guys, I'm the son of God. I've got it. I've got it. Having Jesus in the boat should have changed how the disciples felt about that storm that day. And it ought to change how we feel about the windstorms in our life. So let's just acknowledge storms are real. Great storms don't indicate a lack of faith. Great storms are a part of living in a broken world. And great storms are hard, sometimes unspeakably hard. And having faith in Jesus is not going to take the storm away, but it's going to allow us to move through the storm without the need to panic or to control or to be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. Why does having Jesus in the boat matter? Because here's what's true today. Okay, here's what's true right now. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, after he's just unloaded all these great things that God has done, how God has reconciled us, he's granted us renewal by the Spirit, he's adopted us as his kids, he's predestined us for holiness and glory. After he unpacks all of that, he says, listen, guys, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, what? Is going to be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Nothing is going to separate us today. I don't care what your storm is. Jesus has not cut the ripcord and said, I'm out. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk, What? Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they come for me. That's true for us today. And you know what else is true that's not today, that's coming? Is Jesus is going to wrap this thing up. He's going to make it all new. And I was spending some time to this week in the end of Revelation, and I was reminded just Jesus, after describing what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, he says, listen, there's going to be a dwelling place of God. This is Romans 20, uh, Revelation 21. God's going to dwell with man. They're going to be his people. God will be with them as their God. And he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there's going to be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying, no pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And Jesus reminds you, as if he wants you to pay attention, the last chapter of your Bible Three times, surely I am coming soon. Verse 7, 12, and 20 of chapter 2. So what's true now is that when you're in the boat, God is with you. Jesus has not cut the ripcord on you. And what is true is that he is coming back. You believe that? And as a result of that, we ought to look different. Those of us who say, Jesus is in the boat that I'm in. We ought to look different. We ought to, over time, be less panicked and controlling and fearful of the storms in our life. And that doesn't mean tomorrow. That means over the next course of the rest of your life, there is growth, incremental growth towards trusting in Jesus because you have come to know it. See, I know who is in the boat, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I will be less fearful today than I was a year ago. And I hope in a year I will be less 
fearful and panicky when the storms of my life come. If you don't see Jesus in your boat, then it might be because you're not a part of the body, okay? Some of you are saying, listen, I don't know if you remember Leventhal, but Jesus, he ascended into heaven. At the end of your gospel of Mark that you're talking about, he went to heaven. And so I can't tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, Jesus, psst, there's a storm and I'm about to go under. And I would say to you, Jesus has ascended, that's true. And he's coming back, that's also true. And you wanna see what the hands and feet of Jesus look like? Look around the room, friends. The hands and feet of Jesus are sitting amongst you. It's the body of Christ. And if you are saying, hey, I am on team Jesus, I've come to know and accept him, and I feel all alone, then I would say maybe you're not connected to his body. We are not designed to be alone. When you cut off the finger, the finger dies. When you're bleeding, you need someone to come on, bro, your, your finger, it looks like it's falling off. Let me come help you. Okay, so what do you do if you're currently in a storm? Let me give you three things that, as I was wrestling with this passage and thinking and meditating, that were encouragement to me. One, let's just start by being honest with God. We don't need to fake it. Let's just acknowledge where we are. I, I had this just this week, as I've been processing some of the storms in my life. I went for a walk this one of these mornings early, and I just vomited to the Lord about how I was feeling and the circumstances of my life and some of the loss that I was feeling. And it just was just like, Bleh. And then I went home and a couple days later, I decided I need to write this stuff down. Here's how I'm feeling. Now look, God's not like, oh, didn't know that. But it's helpful for me to say, listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. I am darn near at the end of myself or I'm, I'm afraid where there's, there's all these insecurities and I need to know that I can bring it to you and you're not gonna pistol whip me. So be honest with God, he can handle it and it'll be good for you to acknowledge, God, I'm in the boat with you and don't you see I'm perishing? Don't you care? And then be honest with others. Okay, you and I were not meant to navigate this life alone. We were not meant to walk through this alone. You need me and I need you. So that when we're in the midst of a storm, I can say, listen, I am, feels like I'm dying here. And I know Jesus is, still loves me. And I know that he's coming back for me. I know, and I'm secure because of his death and resurrection. But I feel afraid. And I feel panicked. And I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. And my wife is dying. And, and whatever the circumstances are, be honest with other people so they can come alongside you. Because you're a part of the family. And that's what the family does. We look out for each other. And then take in truth constantly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he just says, listen, we don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, clearly. But our inner self, that's being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Okay. These light and momentary afflictions. The only reason I know what light is, is because I've carried something that's heavy. The only reason I know what temporal is, is because I've had something that's not temporal, that's long lasting. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know that you think that this world is all there is. Some of us who struggle with that. This world is nothing. It's preparing for us. And I know it doesn't feel light. 
And I know it's, it's hard, it's unspeakably hard, but this is preparing for us an eternal way to glory. And this is not the end of the road. Take in truth. Paul, is it earlier, Romans 8, like nothing is going to separate us. Remind yourself, soak in the truth of God's word and let it be a balm on your aching and tired and scared heart. Well, what do you do if you're one of the fortunate ones where right now you are not in a storm? First of all, that's awesome. Be encouraged. Don't get used to it, but be encouraged. What should you do if that's your position right now? Well, one, don't wait for other people in the storms to ask for help. Have your eyes open. If you're living with people in community, you're looking around, go to them. Go to them and be the hands and feet of Christ. That's what you were designed to do. We're a body. We're a family with all of our dysfunction. We're a family. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that may be like, that could require a financial investment in their life, a time investment. You know, my wife and I, over 22 years of marriage, we have been punched in the mouth countless times by life. I've gotten the note, hey, we don't really need you at this job anymore. We've gotten, you know, a couple of miscarriages. We've gotten the call. Hey, Missy, your dad, he went to bed and he didn't wake up. And on and on and on. And do you know that never once, not one time, have we ever walked through those alone? because of the body of Christ has stepped up. And there have been groceries on our front porch. There have been people in our living room uh, crying with us and encouraging us. There's been on and on and on the body of Christ taking care of us in the midst of a storm. That's what we're called to do. How are you doing? Don't browbeat when people are in the storm. Like, I look back with just sadness over some of my interactions over 20 years at this place where I have tried to love on folks who are in the storm and I've done a, not a great job. And I've, they walk away feeling more bruised than loved. And I don't want to be that guy. Don't browbeat those who are in the storm. Now, if you're in a storm and it's because of your sinful, selfish choices, you want to call people to repent. And you got to continue to call them to repent. But if they're in a storm because of life, man, arm around them. How can I love you? How can I serve you? And then don't grow weary. Galatians 6, a little bit later, hey, Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good. He says that because sometimes we can grow weary of doing good. He says, don't, don't do that. For in due season, we're going to reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. You ought to have your brothers back. Nobody wants to remind you, I'm still unemployed. The cancer is still there. Nobody wants to have to bring, we've got to work towards, man, I love you. And I'm going to stay engaged in your storm until you're through the other side. Having Jesus in the boat should change how we feel about great windstorms and about how we feel about those who are in the midst of great windstorms. We are, if you know Jesus, the hands and feet of Christ. You don't ever have to walk alone if you're in the body. As I was preparing to teach this week, I emailed our amazing staff team. And I just said, man, I, I'm teaching on this passage and I would love for you to send me stories of folks in our family who were in the midst of a storm and they're, where they're, like, they're not overwhelmed or overcome by panic or fear. It doesn't mean they're not, they're not fearful or having moments, but they're not defined by panic and need to control. And they're trying to be as faithful as possible with their storm. And my inbox got flooded. I want to share with you 
some of the stories of folks in our body. These are people that are in our family who are in the midst of the storm and they're not perfectly, but they're trying to trust Jesus because they know like I'm in the storm, but I know who's in my boat and that changes everything, right? There's Lauren, Lauren, who just this past week went and got her mammogram and did not get a great result. So she's got a biopsy scheduled and the storm has just blown into her life. And she's saying, hey, I want to, I don't want to be controlled by fear. And I want, I want whatever happens, I want Jesus to use this for his good. There's Ryan, a member of our body who is a longtime safe hunter. Last November around Thanksgiving, he was out hunting. I mean, this is the kind of guy you'd want to teach your kids how to hunt. He's preparing to shoot. He slips. The gun discharges and darn near blows off his leg below the knee. Last Thanksgiving, he has been through over a half a dozen surgeries. He still can't walk. And he is loving his wife. He's not blaming. He's engaging his kids. He's sharing scripture with his guys and gals in his community group regularly. He's not characterized by anger, which would be easy to be angry, right? Or, or um, overwhelmed by discouragement. But he's just trusting God that's going to see him through this life-altering accident. There's Matthew and Ashley, whose newborn son was diagnosed with cancer. And he's currently working his way through chemotherapy. They know who is in the boat with them. And because of that, they're standing strong and they're being a light to others. It doesn't mean it's not through tears. It means they know, like, I know it's in the boat. And this is hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not hard, but I know who's in the boat with me and we're going to keep pressing forward. Matthew and Ashley, I'm sorry, um, uh, David and, and Margie. These guys have been walking through job loss, recovering personally from surgery, and they've continued to lead and love folks and re-engage our ministry to folks uh, that want to make their marriage better. They're caring for aging parents. And in the midst of this COVID stuff, they said, hey, we think one of them has Alzheimer's. We think we can care for you better if you move in. And so while their parents both were positive for COVID, they moved them into their home so they could better love and serve them. They've battled financial storms, uncertainty about the future homes. And, but because they're convinced of who is in the boat, they've clung to their faith and they are persevering. There's Rick. A couple years ago, Rick's wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he has watched his bride slowly have this disease overtake her mind. And she, he has had to, to move her into a home so she could be cared for. And in COVID, she, he's not been able to be with his wife. And she doesn't remember who he is. And he's just being faithful. And he knows that this is not the end. He told me, he told me after the first service, he said, listen, we, we decided, we had this conversation on, this is just a timing thing. He said, this is just a timing thing. We know where we're going to be. And so we're going to be, there'll be some, some years, there'll be 10 or 15 years, we're not going to be together. But I know how it ends. And she's going to, one day, she's going to remember him. Rick, it's you. I had three conversations this week three conversations with women that I personally know, young mothers in this body who are battling autoimmune diseases and they're struggling and they've got young kids and they're wondering and their husband's wondering, what is the future going to hold for us? And they're saying, listen, we know who's in the boat and we're not excited and we don't have all the answers and some days are harder than other days, but we know who's in the boat, Jesus, and we've got others in the boat with us to remind us of what's true and they're making good choices and they're trusting God to see them through however it ends. There's Kelly and Justin. Their sweet little boy Reeves was born July 2nd. 
four pounds, 14 ounces, 16 and three quarter inches long. And while Kelly was pregnant with Reeves, they got a diagnosis that little Reeves had a life-limiting diagnosis. And unless God did something miraculous, this little guy was not going to make it. And so on July 5th, Sunday, three days after he was born, little Reeves died. And as I read what Kelly and Justin had written, about their storm, here's what stuck out to me. They wrote that as hard as it is to say this, we had a peace about knowing that he would pass away. Make no mistake, peace does not equal a lack of sadness or pain. One of the greatest lessons I've come to learn in all of this is that peace in the midst of the deepest pain you can imagine does exist because of Jesus. And I don't have time to read you the rest of the stories that hit my inbox. It's a Hebrews 11 hall of faith in this family right now. Cancer, adoptions that have been put on hold, prodigal children, parents who are dying, unfaithful spouses, and on and on and on. And we have members of our family who are saying, listen, I am, it may be through my tears, but I know who's in the boat the son of God, and I know how this ends and this life is not all there is and he's gonna make all of this nonsense right one day and I just have to be faithful. I love that later in the gospel of Mark, I think chapter nine, there's a dad who comes to Jesus and his kid, his son is not well. And Jesus is engaging this man. The man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I'm like, God, that's, that's how I feel so much of the time. I believe, God, there's still so much unbelief. Would you help me work through it? And Jesus is patient and he's kind. He's not mad at me. He knows my frailty. What is man? You're like dust. And he's gonna make it all right. And I need to lean on you. And you need to lean on me. We need each other. And I need to remember that who is in the boat changes everything. Right? How we answer the question, who is Jesus, is going to determine how we view and respond to the storm. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you are patient and you are kind with us, that you know our frailty, that we are but dust and you love us still. I thank you that. Um, that you are in the boat if we know you. I thank you that you are clearly the son of God, the fullness of deity and bodily form. I thank you that you loved us enough in our brokenness in the midst of our storms to go through your own storm where you climbed the hill of Golgotha and you bled and you died for us. And the clouds landed on top of you. And I'm so thankful that the storm blew and you rose from the dead three days later and you have offered to us a chance to have your, you in the boat for the rest of our eternity. And I pray that you would draw us closer to you. If, those, if there are people in this room or online who don't know you yet and you can't say with any kind of confidence that Jesus is in their boat, today be the day of their salvation. Thank you 
for your word, which instructs us, reminds us, and comforts us in our storms. We believe. Would you help our unbelief? In Jesus' name, amen.